let's go ahead and get started. I was, we were talking just very briefly beforehand and I said, of all the people we've had on so far, I've had the most questions pre-submitted um, for Dr. Glass and that's pretty awesome. Um, you know, I, I don't know if you knew that education and commissioner was a big rock star position that you're in, that everybody <laughs> wants to know you, but uh, here you are. So well, anyway. Yeah, I'm excited about this conversation, Jenny. It, it's, it's great <laughs> to have the interest level that, that we have. And, you know, Kentucky's got a great tradition and history around uh, education and leading in education. It's one of the reasons that I wanted to come back and, and work in the state again. So I'm, I'm excited about this evening and, and having a dialogue with you. That's awesome. I'm so glad you're here. Um, I, I, when we first heard about you, I think everybody got very excited about the fact that you do have deep Kentucky roots, um, being from Kentucky and having taught here. And then you were in Colorado, correct? Yeah, I, uh, my parents were both teachers in the state. So we grew up in Meade County, uh, Brandenburg, and my mom and dad were both uh, career lifelong teachers. And my grandmother was a Kentucky teacher and my sister's a teacher in Metcalf County now. My brother works for Kentucky Educational Television, so he escaped the teaching profession but didn't make it too far, really. Um, so we're all, we're all connected to education in some way. And um, yeah, I, I, I grew up here, I went to UK and uh, did, uh, did my teaching in, in Hazard in Eastern Kentucky. And then um, I, I ended up working at the Colorado Department of Education. That's what relocated me out west and was out there for almost uh, almost 20 years with stops back in Ohio and Iowa. And along the way, I met my wife, Sarah, who's also a teacher. Um, so um, so we, we, you know, I, I didn't make it very far either uh, as far as escaping the family gravity of, of the teaching profession. So um, and uh, we've got we've got two uh, great kids, Nora and Chase. Uh, they are seven and eight about to be eight and nine, and uh, they go to school in Fayette County and uh, the public school system. And we're, we're glad to be back in the Commonwealth and excited about raising our family here. Awesome. Um, and you were a history teacher, correct? I think I heard you say world history. That's right. Yeah, I taught world history and I taught um, uh, this kind of broad um, uh, geography class. So it was, it was a great, great experience, a great right. educators in Hazard and a great community. That's awesome. Um, I, I'm, I'm a huge history nerd. It is my favorite thing. Um, I co-teach a lot in history, so um, I'd love to pick your brain. Um, maybe, maybe that's a good, good, I don't know, warm-up question. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite era of history to teach? Oh, well, I loved, um, I loved teaching about uh, the Roman Empire, mm -hmm. and I love teaching all of the um, sort of um, uh, medieval and uh, transition away from sort of uh, uh, Viking conflicts into, <laughs> into medieval Europe and and then um, more somewhat more recently in the grand scheme of things I love the the Civil War and the Reconstruction era mm -hmm. and then um, uh, the uh, the Civil Rights era uh, mm -hmm. so those are some of the some of my favorite areas to teach but uh, they I really loved all of it still love all of it that's awesome that's awesome um so let's dive into some of the tougher questions. <laughs> um, so the first one, um, a couple years ago, the legislature here stopped funding um, a teacher mentor program called KTIP that you may have been familiar with while you were here. And there have been some attempts to sort of replace it, but that was a lot of hours and it took, you know, there was extra compensation and stuff like that. What what do, what do you envision now that you're here that you could maybe help implement that would help I don't know, pick up that gap. It's so important for first year teachers to have that mentor, somebody that's been there and done it and can kind of help walk them through. Um, 
what are your ideas for that? Because it is a missing part of a really important piece of the puzzle. Right. No, I completely agree. Not only am I, um, do I know about the KTIP program, I went through it. Uh, mm -hmm. So that, that program was in place when I first started teaching too. And I had a great experience with it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's part of a profession, part of developing a profession. So to me, a Profession means that, uh, you know, it's a calling. Not everybody can or should be a teacher. Uh, and it requires a, a commitment uh, at the outset to uh, obtain the pre-service training uh, that's necessary, the induction training, and then the ongoing commitment to growth and improving the craft and, and continuing to expand your own uh, content knowledge. All of that together uh, makes a profession, along with that, this commitment to keep evolving and improving. Um, so uh, that induction part or a new teacher program is an essential part of us developing a professional pipeline. I don't know the context uh, behind why the, that funding was removed. Uh, really, in the grand scheme of the state budget, it's not a lot of money. Uh, so I'm surprised by it. I mean, there's a whole lot of other things that could have been removed um, and that, that kept in place. Uh, but I haven't come into Kentucky saying here's exactly what we should do or what we shouldn't do. What I've intentionally tried to approach, how I've tried to approach it is do a lot of listening or ask people, what do you think? Uh, what are your opinions? What I'm hearing from you is that that was a great value, which I'm not really surprised by. Uh, for especially for a new teacher. Uh, I remember that first year of teaching, oh, you know, it was just, <laughs> I was overwhelmed all the time. Well, and I think that's a common experience for people, right? You're just mm -hmm. drinking from the fire hose for uh, 365 straight days. Uh, but then you, uh, you're a little bit better uh, that second year. Mm -hmm. um, but I, I would be supportive of restoring some kind of uh, teacher internship program, or if it's a K-TIP program or something different, just as we think about um, building a, a fully um, baked or fully fully thought through uh, professional pipeline uh, for people. And what that looks like, I, I want to talk more with people in the state and make sure that that was something that was a value to people. But what I hear you say is it was a value to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was definitely, it, it absolutely was a value to me. Um, I, I, my situation was a little weird. I, I'm a special education teacher and I started in a middle school and um, I, I had kind of a typical learning behavior disorder re resource co-teaching setup. And then, um, you know, this is 16 years ago and they were sort of experimenting with self-contained classrooms at the time. And in the middle of the year, I was switched to a self-contained behavior unit um, in the middle of my first year. And that would be a challenge for a master teacher um, to do that successfully. Um, and I'm very, very thankful for the people downtown that stepped in and helped me and the people, um, um, my mentor teacher for sure. Um, just, you know, I think your first year, a lot of times you don't know how to let things go and go home from work. Um, and, and I think even just somebody telling me that it was okay to do that. Um, I needed somebody that had been there and said, it's okay. Um, uh, really, it's, you know, it sounds a lot like your experiences. Uh, I mean, it's remarkable, but it's also uh, what we would not want to wish on any brand new um, teacher, I agree. right? What you went through, uh, yeah. where you, you have a really challenging uh, job responsibility. And then when, as soon as you say middle school, it like, to me, amp <laughs> amplifies the, the nervousness that should come with it. But, um, mm -hmm. and then, and then to get thrown into even a more difficult situation. So, so, I mean, a new teacher yeah. uh, should be surrounded by lots of support. I mean, no, no way around it. Mm -hmm. um, what, you, what you chose as a path is commendable, but it's a tough path. It's one of the mm -hmm. tougher paths within our profession. So that's where uh, uh, all of the support that we can provide to that new teacher should have been, should have been given. 
Right. Right. I, I completely agree. I will say, you know, I feel like I was definitely a better teacher for having survived. I don't know that I thrived, but it's, um, you know, it, 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 it is one of those things. And I think that's an important program that I would like to see come back at least in some form. Um, yeah. A lot of the kids, like, I wish I could go back to the kids that I had, you know, they're like 34 now. So I call them kids, but um, go back to the students that I had uh, then and just apologize for my first Make up for I'm it. Sorry. I am so sorry. Like, you know, I worked really hard. I, you know, I give myself credit for that, but I made so many mistakes. Um, so let's, <laughs> let's I think on. we all feel that way. Yeah, right. My first two to three years, you feel like you just did not do a good enough job for them. Right. Well, you're right. We right. did. Right. Um, so moving into, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic and there's a lot of issues that come with that, with virtual teaching and stuff like that. One of the questions was, and I thought it was a pretty good one. What ideas do you have for addressing the achievement gap as the pandemic ends? Um, and I think what were your, and then a second follow-up is that there's pending legislation to allow kids to retake a year of school and I don't have the bill number with me. Um, what are your thoughts on that? What, cause you know, we're behind, but we're all behind. I don't think it's as, you know, it's it, every, the entire planet has lost this year so, to pandemic. We've all gone through it. So what are your ideas on how we come back out of this and get back to business? And is it going to be normal? I don't, I mean, what does that look like for you moving forward? Well, well, there's a lot, um, a lot I can say about uh, uh, what the element you've raised. First, I think we're we're not in the middle of it; we're toward the end of it now, and <laughs> so God. that should feel good, right? Like there's a, mm -hmm. there's going to be some time when this virus doesn't rule our lives and everything mm -hmm. that we think about and, and do. Um, so that's that's exciting. We will largely have uh, educators vaccinated probably by the beginning of, of next month, uh, and Kentucky has really prioritized that. Uh, nationally, and so that's that's commendable. Uh, I contrast that to stories uh, coming out from Colorado, the state that I was in, that, that hasn't done this, and it's mm -hmm. really been kind of a Hunger Games approach uh, to getting vaccinated for educators. Uh, and so that's that's a challenge. And here, that that really hasn't been the experience largely across Kentucky. Mm -hmm. We have prioritized and, and made our educators um, uh, elevated elevated in that. Out of, out of the desire to um, that we are experiencing uh, learning loss and, and challenges through this, uh, and they're deep. Uh, it's not just the academic losses, it's a loss of connection to school, connection to teachers, connection to peers, all of the supports and services that a school provides uh, outside of just the, the instructional uh, parts that, that for a lot of kids, maybe that's the most important thing that they're missing out on is the, uh, now we have food insecurity, we don't have someone that's checking for disrupted, right? We're not seeing the kids as often as we were before. Uh, so that, I think out of recognition of that, that's why um, educators were prioritized. And I commend Dr. Stack and Governor Bashir for, for making that moves and in, in, in supported entirely. Um, I think when we, when we look to how we emerge from this, uh, I, I don't like there's a lot of the arguments we have right now are you know, like should we be testing in the spring which is which is a discussion that we probably could get into also but I don't think I'm really going to be surprised if we give a large-scale assessment that says our kids are behind where they would have been if we'd mm -hmm. had a regular school year I'm not going to be surprised by right. that I don't even know I don't need a test to inform me of that fact 
Um, it's to be expected. We have other places where school years have been disrupted by natural disasters. You can look at Hurricane Katrina and the impact that that had on student learning. I mean, it's measurable. So, yeah. so we should expect there to be some kind of disruption. Uh, as what's been unusual about this is it's gone on for so long. Uh, the disruption has just gone on for almost a whole year now. Um, so how we emerge from this, I think has, we have to look at um, uh, what was the academic disruption? That's part of this. So how much quote unquote learning loss or how, how far the kids are, how far behind kids are from where, what we would expect in a typical year. Um, and then think about how we work to build that back over what's gonna probably take two or three years going forward. This is not all gonna get solved with a summer school program. It's not all gonna get solved next year. We gotta think about a long range track because not only do we have to catch kids, kids up on some of the content that they missed, we've got to also add in new content along the way. And so you can't just um, hose down kids with information and, and think that they're going to uh, recover from that. Um, beyond just the academics, uh, we are likely to encounter social emotional uh, concerns, kids that, um, I mean, my, my kids that have are, are here in Fayette County, uh, they have not been in an in, in-person school for a year now. Mm -hmm. uh, and we moved them to a community where they didn't know anybody. So thank you know, goodness they have each other because they don't really have any other friends or anyone to connect with here. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I, I can see like even with, with our kids, uh, as they go out and try and like meet people in the neighborhood, they don't really know how to do it anymore. And so there, and there are social aspects, you know, that right. kids missed out on that we have to take into account. Uh, and our family is, is relatively uh, privileged. So what, how does that look for families that went through a lot of economic distress mm -hmm. in this same period of time? What are the supports that, that they're going to need? Um, so, so I think academics, yes, uh, social emotional so, sort of whole child approach, but first and foremost, where, what I think we've got to focus on is making sure that kids fall in love with school. As we come back out of this, that we're creating meaningful, authentic, engaging, powerful learning experiences for kids. Mm -hmm. um, I will go crazy if we bring in kids in summer school and we park them in front of a computer for some kind of automated, mm -hmm. um, you know, test prep kind of program. That would be the worst possible thing I think we could do. Um, but if we if we spend our energies on how across the whole state we create meaningful, powerful, positive, engaging learning experiences for students, I think that's going to have the biggest impact. That's what we're uh, advocating for and trying to support at the Department of Education uh, and what I hope we see over these next couple of years. I, I absolutely love that um you know i think you're right about having kids fall in love with school again i think that's going to be a necessary part because it's been a weird year as a teacher in fayette county i understand how weird it's been for the kids here um yeah. for sure. oh you did you did mention the uh the bill, the bill. to allow students to be retained yeah um I, I sort of, I'm conflicted about this one. Mm -hmm. um, I know where it's coming from. And I, I would start with that. I think it's coming from a good place. Like um, Senator Wise has uh, heard and seen that kids missed out on a lot of experiences and he wants to create an avenue where kids can have those experiences, some, some once in a lifetime experiences if they want to. And so that's where mm -hmm. I think the, the, the place, the spirit that this bill is coming from. Um, so, but, but I also think that it, it creates a lot of complexity in terms of um, athletics and activities and how do you account for that, uh, credits, uh, GPAs, uh, valedictorian calculations. I mean, it's just like you start peeling the onion about what if you had a lot of kids that repeated a year and what would that look like? Funding uh, calculation uh, questions, all, all these things um, are, are, are 
um, complex and you have to sort through what are we going to do or how do we solve uh, solve those and all of those complex calculations involve some values decisions like if we say okay we're, we're going to allow kids to uh, not only repeat a year but they can have an extra year of athletic uh, eligibility well that's great for the kid that gets that what does it mean to the underclassmen that's been waiting for their shot are they deprived because of that uh, so and there's not a good answer uh, to it so I, I think there's a lot of complexity and, and technical challenges that we have to uh, work through, but I think the bill comes from a, a good place. Ultimately, I think it'll be up to the, the legislature to determine if they want to do it and where we at KDE come in is really trying to work through and solve some of the technical questions or provide them with our recommendations on how to do that. Right, right. Um, excellent. Thank you. Um, I have a question and you sort of mentioned this talking about how the impact, uh, the impact of the pandemic you know, it's not, it's not equal on everybody. Um, you know, I, I know I sit in a place of privilege where um, I was able to work from home and my kid was taken care of and my, you know, my husband, we both had a job. We're both teachers. Um, it, it, we came from a really good place. Not everybody's been in that situation. And so kind of looking at the inequity, somebody posed a question. Um, what is the path to realizing increased equity in Kentucky in schools? Um, how is KDE prepared or preparing to tackle anti-racism in the classroom? Well, um, of course, you know, the events from this summer uh, really brought this uh, to the surface and, and demanded that we do something about it. And it's, it's an overdue crisis. It's a long boiling crisis or a long simmering crisis uh, that finally, finally has erupted. Um, and, and I really see where we are right now as an opportunity um, that there's a, a powerful, compelling story about why you have to do something about it now. When we've seen the video of, of George Floyd being mur murdered, we heard the stories of Breonna Taylor here in Kentucky. It really demands that we, we do something something about this. Um, so what that looks like, I think, is a, is a long journey. Uh, we're not going to pass a resolution. We're not going to change some policies and eradicate systemic racism in the United States. Right. Um, it's going to, this is going to be a, a long-term engagement. And, and, uh, I, and I think it will uh, involve uh, some supports around internal uh, critique, evaluation uh, for our school districts, um, and our practices as a state. Uh, so those may uh, come from uh, things like uh, what, what not only are we uh, considering equity when it comes to funding distribution. Um, so we think about um, the, the Rose case from 1989 that led into the CARE reform that was really designed to increase property tax funding equity across the state. Uh, and now you have federal dollars that have been layered in that try and direct dollars to where we've got greater numbers of students in poverty or students that have other um, uh, challenges, but is that enough? Um, so from a funding aspect, I think you can have an equity conversation around are you sending dollars to those places that have are serving the, the uh, most at risk students? That's one way to think about equity. Um, another is an evaluating um, policies and practices within districts and within, within schools. Uh, for example, uh, do you have limitations on 
um, who can access higher level coursework in school. And it's based on a series of prerequisites. Uh, and the prerequisites in those, uh, to those courses are less available in some high schools versus others. Um, and, and that is race and, and income dependent. And so that's an equity factor, that's systemic racism. Um, if, if you have those kinds of things that limit opportunities for kids um, uh, based on where they grow up and, and um, uh, really how much um, uh, advocacy the community can marshal and demand services for its students. Um, another way uh, to, uh, or another element might be looking at a policy around how we identify students for gifted services. Um, if we're just using uh, test-based methods of doing that, then we know uh, because test scores are highly correlated with race and socioeconomic status, we know that we're excluding a lot of black and brown kids and poor kids from gifted services. And do we really believe that black and brown kids and poor kids are less gifted than white and Asian uh, wealthy kids? Of course not. Of course, we don't believe that, uh, but our system is resulting in that outcome. So I think those are the kinds of things that we're going to have to work on over the next um, few years. What we've done at KDE is uh, my, my first major hire was Thomas Woods Tucker uh, as um, our chief academic officer, but also the state's chief equity officer. Mm -hmm. So what he's been doing is an analysis of, of all of the practices that are in place in the state, because we want to recognize like there are some good things here. There are some good efforts under way and that have been underway. We'll want to collect those um, and put together a toolkit for districts around here's how you go about an equity scan or an equity self-evaluation. Here are the policies and practices you want to look at. Here's how you engage your community about it. Uh, here's, here's some model policies you may want to change to. And it's all from uh, I, I think it has to be from a recognition that it's not just racial equity. We're talking about racial equity right now because it's the black people that are getting killed by the police. And that's why it's, it's right. at, at alarm right now. But when we talk about equity, it's, it's uh, LGBTQ plus, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's gender, it's, it's economic, it's religious. Like there are lots of layers to this that we've got to look through. And what, what we should be about is public, sco public schools and public educators. Is any kid that walks into our building, uh, it's our responsibility to serve and support that kid to be as great as they possibly can be. Um, and so we've got to we've got to keep bringing that forward. Absolutely, um, I completely agree with you there. Um, okay, so next question: um, There is currently a bill, and it's headed to the Senate um, to change the pensions for new teachers coming into the system in 2022. Um, given that other states around us, like Ohio, have better retirement plans that would, well, for teachers that would be coming into the system, um, what are your, you know, you know, a lot of us are really nervous that we're not going to be able to retain or recruit the best and brightest, you know, if they're in Northern Kentucky and Ohio's pension system's better, why in the world wouldn't they go North um, or South or wherever? Um, so what are your plans to help retain or recruit and retain the best and brightest? And even if you could touch on how we retain or recruit a more diverse workforce, because I think that's something important too. Right, well, it's multi-layered and the salary and the compensation system and the retirement system is part of um, what teachers consider. Um, I actually wrote my dissertation on the question of are teachers motivated out of altruism or motivated for money? And the answer, you're gonna be shocked, is yes, both. 
is true, mm -hmm. primarily altruism, but teachers also are rational human beings, right? They pay attention to incentives. They've got real economic pressures in their lives. And so they make decisions based on that too. And we've made it um, not just in Kentucky, but around the country, uh, hard to commit to this profession um, and, and stay in it, uh, especially at the front end when the pay levels are, are so low. Mm -hmm. um, so I think um, uh, we have to, uh, invest in education, uh, not just from the pension side, but across the board. The salaries have to be competitive mm -hmm. at the front end and throughout a career uh, so that we're able to attract uh, teachers in. We've got to do a better job of uh, uh, recruiting students into the teaching profession. I think um, our parents and some of our own teachers uh, discourage people from entering the teaching profession. And I think that's a travesty. It's an amazing, wonderful profession. Um, my wife and I have both had, had great careers and my whole family has. And so I tell people all the time, um, you should think about entering the teaching profession, especially when I'm talking to groups of gifted and talented kids. Uh, like the, you need to be thinking about this. Some of our, some of our best and brightest kids need to be thinking about the teaching profession as a future. Uh, I think with this, um, with this pension discussion, uh, we all want that pension to be there when we retire. I mean, uh, it, it's a promise that the state is making to its employees. Um, Kentucky, like a lot of other states, has an unfunded liability. So the pension has more it owes than it has and that it's bringing in. And on the, the part of the pension that's sort of after 2022, we're working to pay that off over a number of years. And that's going to take, I think, 23 more years in Kentucky for it to be balanced again. Uh, I uh, appreciate Representative Massey taking on this really emotional and provocative topic, especially in Kentucky. I know that it's been something that's been a, uh, just a lightning rod of controversy over several years. Uh, but I, he, he also, I give him credit because he listened to a lot of different groups and perspectives and putting that together. I don't know that you ever get to a point that everybody is satisfied uh, with the pension bill. Uh, because when you start thinking about solving the unfunded liability problem, it involves more money. And so either the state has to pay it, the existing employees have to pay it, the new employees have to pay it, or the retirees have to pay it. it it's got to come from somewhere to solve the unfunded liability. I've always been a fan of trying to balance that out as much as you can. So instead of aiming the pain all at one group, um, you, you try to spread it out, which is what I think the previous uh, pension changes have attempted to do. Uh, this next change is, uh, shifts the pension system uh, more to a 401k, 403b model, uh, but it still has a guaranteed base and then, an, and then a variable amount on top of that. And so the, it's, not a, it's not a true um, privatized pension uh, program or, or private uh, retirement program, but I, I know that it, it gives people concern. Um, because you don't have the, the same guarantees. But I, I do think that all of our goal in looking at these pension systems is, is, is can we create stability? Uh, can it be there when the person retires? And is it still attractive enough uh, to the point you were making over? Can, can we uh, get people excited and interested in, in teaching? Um, I, I think if, um, uh, you know, if this if this frees up three and a half billion dollars uh, in state revenue, uh, we, need to, we need to work hard then to make sure sure that that's turned around and invested back into education so educators get it on salary um, or in lower class sizes or in better services uh, for or in working conditions. So if it, if it does indeed free up that money, we're going to have to work hard to make sure that that goes back into education in some form. Um, I think that's an excellent point you made. Um, in, in a couple of them. Um, I really, you know, I too appreciate the way that um, 
Representative Massey handled this and bringing people in and getting input from different stakeholders. Um, I met with him once with 120 um, and, and I appreciate it. I still flat out told him I didn't agree with the bill and didn't support it. But, um, you know, I've still not had anybody convince me that anything other than paying what the state is supposed to pay is a needed fix. Um, I agree with you that the 3.5 billion that they would save should definitely go back into education, um, you know, wherever it needs to, even if it goes back into the old pension plan to help shore it up since it was shorted for so many years. Um, so I, I, I really do appreciate that. But moving into that, I think the state is also considering vouchers currently, which I believe if we've looked at it correctly, um, in 20 years would cost the state some 20 billion um, cumul cumulatively over time. So what do you, how do you approach something like that? Um, I'm going to assume Colorado might've been a state that had them. Um, we are not one and I don't particularly want them here, but um, what are, what are your- Co Colorado did not have a voucher okay. program. Okay. It, had, it had a quite a robust charter school program. Okay, that's right. Um, that's right. So, but that's, that's a really a different thing. Uh, and that's my beagle, the random yawn you just heard. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm not um, making noises. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, Colorado had uh, a robust public school choice system. And so what I mean by that is students had the ability to uh, go to any school that they wanted to within their district or outside of their district. The parent was empowered to make that decision. And a lot of districts had uh, charter schools that were either run by the district or they were run by um, a separate state agency. So there, there was a lot of public school choice and options that parents had. Uh, Colorado did not have a voucher system where you took public funds and then you sent it to a private school or a private entity. Um, so um, uh, so th that was the configuration there. And, you know, I think there were some positives about the public public school choice uh, system that was in, in Colorado. And then there were lots of uh, gaming and equity problems that you would expect. And so I, 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 ha I had experience with it. Um, I worked with charter schools in, in both of the districts where I was a superintendent. And I'll tell people they were a mixed bag. Uh, there were some great charter schools that I saw um, and that I'm, I'm glad are in existence because they were doing good things for kids. But if you think that that is going to be the solution that transforms education in your state, that's going to turn things around, it's not. Uh, it's 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 a false promise. Um, I think when it comes to this voucher bill that's advancing, I am opposed to uh, vouchers, neo-vouchers, tax credits, anything like that. Uh, I, I think that we have to decide as a state, are we building up and supporting our public education system or are we dismantling it? And we need to make that decision and then start acting accordingly. Um, but um, uh, trying to uh, shift dollars in some form pub from the public system into uh, private schools, um, I'm not supportive of unless, and I'll make this caveat, unless we really level the playing field. And by that, I mean, if you're a private school and you take public dollars, you serve any student that walks in the, in the door and you transport them to the door. Uh, and so if a kid shows up with a disability, if a kid shows up with a bunch of needs, you enroll them and you serve them. And then when you have problems with the kid and you have problems with the family, you don't get to turn them away and keep the money. Uh, you serve them. Uh, so let's really level the playing field. If we want them, if we want to, uh, I'll be happy to stack our schools in Kentucky up against any schools anywhere in the country. Uh, and our kids in Kentucky up against kids anywhere in the country. But let's really level the playing field if we're going to send these dollars to private schools. What are they really private anymore? If we get to that point, if they're taking the public dollars and acting in a public manner, 
public schools. I actually would like to piggyback on the on this question about educational opportunity accounts. You're in a unique position having grown up in Meade County and worked in Eastern Kentucky. Mm -hmm. A lot of times it seems like rural legislators and rural parents, when they are being talked to about these accounts, tax credits, whatever you want to call them, they honestly think it, it's probably not going to impact them or their school system. What would you say to those folks, you know, in terms of how do these education opportunity accounts really impact them outside of Lexington Louisville? Well, if you create a state system that uh, in the current bills that are being considered now, uh, it really creates a tax credit or incentives for corporations to put money into um, a scholarship fund for private schools and not pay state taxes. Um, then what that does is it reduces the state revenues, uh, which will is going to hit everybody. Mm -hmm. um, then where the private schools are located, those are going to be the places that, that those dollars go, and they're not going into communities where you don't have a private school. Um, and, I, and I'll just say that, um, you know, I, I don't have any, anything against private schools. I spent some time uh, during uh, my uh, teacher education uh, year, years at UK working at Lexington Catholic. It was a great experience. Mm -hmm. uh, they do a great job. So this is not about um, hammering private schools. I want all of our schools to be great. It's not a zero-sum game. We can have great private schools. We can have great public schools of, of all kinds. Um, but uh, I think when public dollars are accepted, there comes a moral responsibility uh, to serve every child and to serve the public. Um, and unless and when you pick up those public dollars, you should also pick up that moral responsibility. I don't see that in the legislation that we currently have uh, right now. That's something that they could work on uh, adding if they wanted to go that way. But I think it comes again back to that decision. Are you are you building up and working to improve your public education system or are you dismantling it? And there, there's, there's a fundamental um, question before us. Um, I kind of want to touch on one thing too. One of the things, um, you know, you talked about um, was maybe lowering class sizes. That's something you definitely do with that money. I think that's a problem that the pandemic has exposed. A lot of us would have been able to get back in buildings earlier if our classes weren't sitting at 30 plus, I think 37, I heard of a world history section that might be getting ironed out because it'll be with 37 when we go back. And, and that to me is insane. I can't imagine it. I've taught it for years. That sounds like a lot. Um, but so again, lower class size is something that would be awesome. However, you've got to have people to fill those roles. And all I keep hearing about is um, bus driver and teacher shortages. Like they're just not enrolling in college. I've heard one major university, public university in the state has zero people enrolled in their middle school program. And listen, I taught there. It's a hard program probably to draw people into, but the people who do it, I adore and love, and they have special hearts and places in heaven. Um, what are your plans to fill these vacancies, quite frankly? Um, and, and how do we get people in? And I, I know you talked, touched about that a little earlier when you talked about encouraging people to become teachers, but are there anything else? Like, what else can we do? Could we do right, right? Do you want to go back really quickly to the uh, the, the private school uh, conversation for or the school choice conversation for just a moment? Then let's get to this this point because I think it's really important, uh, and I'm glad that you you circled it back around because we I don't think we uh, got deeply enough into that um, earlier. Um, when it comes to um, the uh, the school choice 
question in Kentucky. Uh, we have a Republican supermajority um, who, you know, they may decide that that school choice is a major priority for them, but they can run it through. Uh, they have the power to do that because of their numbers in the legislature. Um, but before we go to a, a, a privatized or a voucher system, there are a lot of steps that could be taken along the way. So in, in uh, changing intra-district school choice options for families. Right now, the districts control a lot of that. Changing intra-district or inter-district school choice, so across district, that's another thing that could be looked mm -hmm. at. Uh, the state has a charter school uh, bill on, on the books. Again, not, charter schools are a mixed bag, but the funding side of that is just messy. Uh, it was not well thought through and constructed, which is one of the reasons that you, don't ha you didn't have any real charter schools mm -hmm. open up and take off. Uh, those are all public school choice avenues. Uh, that could be looked at before you go to a uh, privatization route. Uh, another misstep, I think, is um, uh, 529 um, investment accounts are a way that people can save for college for their kids. Uh, they, those can also be used for private schools. Um, and so people could put money in that and get a tax incentive uh, to, to do that. Kentucky is one of the few states in the country that doesn't allow a tax deduction for 529 investments. Uh, most of the funds that are in those don't go to private schools. Most people use them as a vehicle to save for their kids' college. Uh, but Kentucky doesn't offer a tax break for that. So all of those are areas where we could do some work before you go to a voucher uh, system. Now, I'm not saying that those are the right thing to do. I'm coming, where I'm coming from is we need to be investing and in building up our public education system. It's right. where the vast majority of kids in the state are. Stop tinkering at the edges with these kind of gimmicky approaches. Work on where you've got the most, most of your kids that are being served. So put your energy into the public school system. Uh, underscore that. Uh, exclamation point behind it. Um, when it comes to uh, recruiting people into the teaching profession, I, I really like the, um, the, the teacher recruitment effort uh, that Commissioner Lewis started. Uh, that whole um, uh, uh, teacher recruitment effort, uh, I think, was a good idea. But, uh, he also uh, started up a, an approach around, um, it's called the uh, Kentucky Academy for Equity in Teaching, which was designed to be a broad series of programs to recruit um, minorities uh, into education, help them get uh, certified, help them get placed, uh, some financial incentives and a recruiting effort uh, around that. Uh, none of that really uh, took off, um, or some, some parts of it took off, and then it got defunded, and uh, we had all the disruption with uh, boards of education and commissioners, and it kind of got lost in the shuffle. So uh, credit where credit is due, I think they did a nice job with the policy uh, that was around recruiting people into the profession, lifting up and, and uh, a, a public advertising campaign around the profession of teachers to try and uh, teaching to try and draw people into it, supporting minority candidates coming into education, all good efforts. We just need to fund it and do it. Um, so uh, Governor Bashir, I give uh, him credit. He's lifted funds out of uh, his administrative budget. It's not a new tax ask or a revenue diversion. Uh, it's funds that the governor's office has had, and he's put it into the Kentucky Academy for Equity and Teaching program or umbrella of programs. So we're going to start seeing some um, benefits of that because we're finally going to have the resources to bring that, that program uh, to life. So uh, to me, it's a, it's a nice connection. Uh, again, hats off, uh, kudos to Commissioner Lewis for getting that started, but he never had the funds uh, or, or the um, time really to implement it. Now we've got Governor Bashir coming in, making the funds available, and we're going we're to stay 
stand this up and run with it uh, from the EPSB board and the staff at the Educational Professional Standards Board and KDE. Uh, so I'm, I'm excited about uh, the possibility that those programs have to both recruit people into education and especially minority candidates. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I wasn't aware of that program, but I'm glad to hear about it. That's really awesome that you're, um, that Governor Brashear's put money to, I mean, I think in education, we're so used to unfunded mandates. I mean, it's an odd concept to think that we've made something and then paid for it. <laughs> but, um, so that's awesome. I, I'm glad to hear that. Um, you sort of touched on this earlier, but I wanted to ask, um, because it was at, it was sent to me, um, one of the questions, what are your plans for 2021 K prep? <laughs> wow. Uh, well, uh, my plan right now is to wait and see. Uh, so there's a courageous answer. How about that? Um, there you go. <laughs> yeah, uh, we, we need to see what the federal government is going to allow in terms of flexibility around this. So we've got a new Secretary of Education uh, coming on board. One of the most important decisions that Miguel Cardona is going to have to make is what uh, if any flexibility is going to be offered for testing uh, this this coming uh, spring or this spring. Uh, with Secretary DeVos, she told states clearly prepare to administer the assessment. Uh, and so we didn't know at that time, uh, which that was in September, we didn't know what kind of administration we'd be dealing with. Uh, so we in Kentucky began and working toward preparing to administer that assessment. Now with that, what we, how we approached it was to say, if we have to administer assessment uh, or we, we're compelled to administer an assessment, let's make it as flexible as we can. So give schools a lot of windows and opportunities to give the assessment and make the assessment as short as we can. Uh, so we have students in the building um, and um, uh, uh, not spending a, a a great deal of time on it or as a shorter period of time as we possibly can. So that's the approach that we've taken with it. Uh, I think uh, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to see from the new administration, now that we know we've got a Biden presidency mm -hmm. and we've got a, a new secretary of education, they're going to make a determination on what, if any, flexibility is going to be provided for states. I think if I were to bet, I would say that they're going to kick that decision to the states. The federal government is not going to say give it or don't. They're going to say states, you are allowed to apply for a waiver. Um, and so then the decision is going to come to us in the state of Kentucky around what do we want to do. And I need to do some more listening uh, to see what, what we want to do. I hear in one ear um, sort of accountability folks, equity folks, they want this assessment given. They want to know where students are. And I hear a lot from our educators that say, this is crazy. Uh, this has been a disrupted year. We've got tons of other things that we're trying to manage. How are we even going to get these kids in to test them? Why do this? Uh, so I think both of those voices are compelling. and We're going to have to sort that out. What I don't think we can do is just say, damn the consequences, we're going to give it or not give it. Because uh, there are millions, hundreds of millions of federal dollars that are at risk if you just thumb your nose to the federal government, because uh, this is these are their funds that they tie up um, if you don't follow their rules. So let's, let's wait, let's give it a couple of weeks and see what the landscape looks like. And then I think we've got another conversation to have in, in Kentucky. Uh, I've really tried to approach this as it shouldn't be me deciding um, what we do. It, it may end up from a, an authority and a legal standpoint, I'm the one who has to make the decision, but that's going to be based on listening to people and trying to get an understanding of where the prevailing attitude or value is in, in the Commonwealth. Awesome. Thank you. Um, let's see. Trent, did you have a question? I do. Yes. Yes. Uh, Dr. Glass, first of all, thanks for being here. We really appreciate that. Uh, my question is about the KAS, the Kentucky Academic Standards. Um, 
I'm on a different KES, the Kentucky Academy of Science. I'm on the board for transparency's sake. And uh, we were asked to be a consultant uh, to the advisory panel. And from my understanding, the Kentucky academic standards are currently under review until uh, I think next Monday. And I just, I thought this would be a good venue for you to talk a little bit about the uh, 2020 or 2021 uh, academic standards review process. Yeah, thanks Trent. And um, Kentucky had, like a lot of states, um, there's a system of reviewing the standards that's sort of cyclical. So um, I think in Kentucky in 2018, 19, they started with um, uh, reading, writing, and math. And then the next year they went to social studies. And then, and then I think we're on a science now. So I'll play kind of the new guy card and say, I haven't been here through all of that, but I know that we're working on the science standards now. And it's I think are really a best practice what Kentucky has in place where you chunk out your standards. You're not trying to evaluate or re review them all at once. Uh, and that you don't put them, you don't um, put in new standards and then you ignore them for two decades and then try to update them all at once. I think the system that we have in place, which is cyclical is the right way to go about it. So we've got science standards coming up. Of course, those standards in Kentucky are based on the next generation science standards from the um, mid 2010 era. Right. Um, and Stephen Pruitt, of course, was a major driver in those. Um, and he, before he came to Kentucky, he was a sort of a national cheerleader and driver behind getting those na uh, next generation science standards spread across the country. So a lot of credit, uh, credit to him uh, for, for that work. Uh, when I was in Iowa, I was the state chief in Iowa, the companion position to, um, to Kentucky. When those science standards were implemented there, Stephen came out to Iowa and talked to our science teachers about it. I'm proud that uh, we were able to get those science standards in place there. The, um, our science standards in Kentucky are aligned to those next generation science standards. I think it's really good work. But like everything else, uh, what we know evolves and shifts. Uh, and science certainly is something that keeps changing and evolving. So every few years, you should pick up the standards and say, does this reflect what we know about the content now? Does it reflect best practice um, in terms of what we know about teaching science? And so that's really the work is to look at the the system of standards that we have, um, benchmark them against other states, against other international systems, make sure that they're challenging and developmentally appropriate uh, for our students, uh, and, and check those standards against, uh, against those other um, system models. Uh, I, I also think it's important that we, we clarify that there's a difference between uh, standards and curriculum. Um, I would say that the, the the what students experience in a classroom runs the gambit from very high level standards, which are concepts that students learn in different uh, different developmental times as they progress through school. So that's standards uh, to a scope and sequence. So let's further break down the stuff that kids are going to learn and in what order within the scope and sequence. There are uh, units where we organize concepts together. There are lessons uh, that are the things students experience on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, there are tasks that the students engage in or work that the student does. Um, there are assessments to see how students do. And there are resources that students react to is, uh, all throughout that or, or experiments uh, that kids do or things that they, things students read or see. All of that, I would say, is under the bucket of 
curriculum. All of that stuff makes up curriculum. And so when we start talking about standards or curriculum or assessments, I always think it's really important to really ask people, what do you mean? Uh, I know that we've had some criticism of our social studies standards to say they don't include some content. And no, they don't because there's standards. Um, and standards are high, broad, high level, broad level concepts. Uh, the content fits uh, more at the scope and sequence or even at the unit or the lesson level. What are the facts, dates, figures um, that students should be lowing, uh, learning? And those should, of course, be aligned to the standard. Uh, but there's sort of different levels of um, elevation or uh, granularity, maybe is another way to put it, uh, that, that come as, when we talk about standards. Well, yeah, got you. Well, thanks for explaining that. That makes a lot of sense. And we look forward to, um, you know, helping out any way we can. Thanks, Trent. I appreciate you. Um, I would like to personally say I love the social studies standards, <laughs> um, but I, I love the whole idea that they've switched to of, um, you know, making a claim and being able to support it with evidence and teaching kids to do that because it's just good life skills. Um, and if we can teach them how to do that using historical documents and artifacts, oh my goodness, like I, I, I could nerd out just thinking about it. Like it's really exciting what we've done. And um, you were talking about people complaining about it not being in the standards. Um, and I just kind of laughed because somebody was like, well, how do you teach about that? And I was like, I did yesterday and it, nobody needed to tell me it was part of it. <laughs> like, it, it trust me, it will get covered. Yeah. Like, um, but yeah, so that's that's been a super interesting one. I'm gonna I'm gonna sort of bring it home because we've we're getting close to an hour. I think I could talk to you for probably three or four more and just be fascinated and learn all the things. But let you know, in the interest of people probably not wanting to stare at me or you or whoever for another three hours, let's let's go ahead and wrap it up. I have a good kind of follow up question or like a final question here, um, and it was there was a comment and something else, but. And I, you know, for the past several years before, before you were here, when you were out in Colorado, um, you know, it was sort of a rough environment to be a teacher in Kentucky. Um, we felt very beat up, um, you know, whatever by our governor at that point, it, it just, it just wasn't a very friendly, wholesome um, environment when you were a teacher, you didn't feel super supported. And I feel like that sort of bled out into some communities. And the comment was, we need a comprehensive PR campaign for Kentucky public schools and public school teachers. Um, I know that I've actually seen KDE sort of, or maybe it's through KEDC too, but I've seen something like this that's um, telling your story um, type of thing if you wanted to talk about that. The other thing was other than the kind of PR of what, a, it, it was like, you know, just kind of pointing out the awesome things we are doing. Um, Cause I think a lot of people forget about that and we kind of make an easy target to beat up on sometimes, unfortunately. Um, so what are some things you wanna to do to kind of engage the public more that way to promote what we, the good things we are doing um, or how to just kind of get information to the public in general? Um, what ways, what avenues, if people wanted to know what KDE has been up to or how would they find that out? Like what ways do they need to look for? Yeah, well, I think this is a really important point that you raise. Um, uh, telling the positive stories in public education, the miracles that happen in our communities every single day is so, so important, especially uh, against the uh, deluge of constant bad news uh, that, and attacks that the public education uh, endures. Um, one of the things that I worked on uh, in Colorado with a group of other districts was a, a project called Our Schools, Our Community. It was all focused on um, empowering and teaching 
uh, district level staff from teachers to uh, support staff, bus drivers, cooks, custodians, uh, to administrators, to district communication staff about how to tell their stories in communities because those stories are what's really important. I was really thrilled when I came, he came back to Kentucky and I saw that uh, the work that Tony Constatman did uh, has done at the Kentucky Department of Education really is that in that same spirit. Uh, it lifts up uh, great stories, great um, uh, success stories in Kentucky schools from kids and students and great things happening and showcases them. And so Tony and her staff do a tremendous job just beating the drum on a constant basis of the good things that are happening in their schools. I also appreciate the way our associations have approached this uh, from KEA, KASS, um, all, all of the state K groups um, uh, that uh, make, an, make an effort, KESB, make an effort around KESA, and I'm afraid I'm going to leave, leave one out um, if, if once I start naming them, but um, they've all done a good job, I think, lifting up uh, the positive stories that are, that are out there, and that's something that we need to, um, to continue, and that's something you can count on me continuing, and the department continuing uh, as well. Um, the department's got a strong uh, social media presence that's only growing all the time. Uh, we've now... Uh, uh, worked hard on adding uh, video presentations, um, uh, attractive graphic art. So there's some uh, communication uh, marketing approach uh, or thinking that's put with this campaign to really make it take off. It's something that I'm, I'm excited about continuing and supporting here uh, in Kentucky. Uh, one thing I think that we've got to be careful of um, it, as educators is we often are our wor own worst enemy. Um, when it comes to talking about our schools. And that's, and I, I wanna emphasize that I, I understand that we've got challenges they are, and those challenges are real. But when we go out in our community and we post on Facebook or we say our schools are run down, our teachers are exhausted, they're under, under uh, we, we don't have enough talent, we can't attract and keep bright people in the profession, our buildings are unsafe, our, our school, school buses are crowded, our classrooms are crowded, that's all a failure narrative that we have inflicted upon ourselves. Now, again, I'm not saying that there's not some truth to all of those statements, there are. Um, but when we say those things, the public hears that. And then we turn around to the public and say, would you like to send your kid to our schools? Would you, would you like to give more money to this system? That's a harder sell. Um, so I, I think it's, it's something that we're gonna have to work through um, I know it's a difficult thing because there's, there's truth to all that. There is. Um, but when we, when we talk about building support for public education, it has to come from the educators um, as well. We've got to be our own uh, ambassadors uh, to, to our communities. And I think, you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to come back to Kentucky is growing up in Meade County, I saw a really positive and cohesive system. Uh, where the community supported its public schools mm -hmm. and the public schools supported the community and they worked together and they were there for each other and people were proud of the public schools and, and there was an identity that you had uh, and that's the way it should be uh, that there is that connection that close connection and pride uh, in the schools and in the community and, and so that's that's something that I carry forward with me as the way maybe I'm romanticizing it um, but I think it's really what we should be striving for is that close connection of, of school and community and building on that. 
I really, I like the idea of kind of reframing the narrative and the positive because listen, our job, and we all know this, our jobs are, I single-handedly think I have the best job ever. Um, I get to work with awesome kids and awesome people, um, teaching about things I love um, and kind of instilling that learn, learn, love of learning in my students. And that is an amazing thing. And, you know, nobody, ever, most everybody sitting on here knows that magic that you see when a kid gets something that they've been working really hard for. And like, I think you could like power a city with that kind of like seeing that happen. It's just fabulous. I think you're, I think you might be onto something with reframing the thing. And I, and I think that's an interesting balance. I'm excited to watch you um, walk as commissioner. <laughs> well, I think you can say both, right? You right. can say, yeah. you can say, I'm, I'm, pr I'm proud of, I'm proud to be a teacher in Kentucky. I'm proud to be an educator. And here's what my kids are doing. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm, and I'm struggling. Like I'm mm -hmm. struggling to pay the rent right. and, and I'm struggling to save for my own kids. Like both of the, there's space for both of those truths. Yeah. Right. But we, we, I think, and this is this is the global we, like it's all the whole nation of educators. Uh, we have have really perseverated on the failure negative uh, narrative and the and the the deficit uh, narrative. We haven't we haven't done a good enough job telling our own positive stories, and they're coming from the teachers in the classrooms and our administrators. That's where they come from because you guys, you you all y'all. I should I got to get back to saying y'all, uh, y'all have. Um, Y'all have those stories, right? Because you see them every day, uh, and you're you're going to be the best people. If we imagine if we had fifty thousand uh, public education employees on a regular basis, um, tweeting out positive things about public schools, we would overwhelm any sort of Russian disinformation uh, that's out there about our about our schools. I, you know, I think maybe we should take our own advice. I think we're often, we are often told in college of education to learn to deliver bad news wrapped in positive. So positive, negative, positive. And maybe if that's the way we start talking about issues we have, good thing, here's what's happening. <laughs> Another good thing. Maybe you might be onto something. I'm really, I'm kind of intrigued by this because I've never really thought about it that way. But that's, thank you. That's a great, interesting thought. I really appreciate that. Um, any last thoughts you want to share with anybody before we close? Just uh, I'm. Uh, I want to note that um, I'm often asked like, "What's my vision?" Uh, and and I I think it doesn't matter what my vision is. I mean, they hired me, so they get kind of um, a playbook that I've used in different places around bringing about change. Uh, but I think more than anything, our path forward should be crafted by what do people in Kentucky want. Uh, for the future of their schools, what what are their aspirations for their schools, for their kids? What is the future? What is the future that they want for their schools and their kids? And that should be the basis of whatever we do going forward, which is really hard to argue with, right? It's what the people wanted. It's what the educators wanted. It's what the kids wanted. This is the future that they wanted. Uh, so we have these listening tours scheduled. Um, we've got them happening in April uh, and a, a little bit of May. I encourage people to jump onto those and participate in that. That'll be part of an effort that we have underway to gather that feedback around what people uh, hope school can be or dream that school can be. And so we're going to keep keep gathering that information, and that will form the basis of what where I hope we go. And it'll be based on uh, the the ideas and and uh, aspirations of Kentuckians. I, I absolutely love that. I think it's a fabulous idea. Um, anything else, Trent or Paula? All right. Well, just, uh, just discussion. Had... 
quite a few people commenting, say they appreciate the conversation and appreciate the leadership. So we're happy to have you here. Thanks. Yeah. Thank you, Trent. Definitely welcome back um, to Kentucky. Oh, I, I uh, Tony is sending us the listening tour dates. And if you are, gosh, my beagle is driving me nuts, y'all. He's, he's, he's so honorary right now and plan, trying to play with his toy with me. Um, I'm going to post what Tony just sent me about the listening tour dates on our public page and on our private pages so that if anybody's interested in checking those out, um, you know where to find them. And you have to register. So she says, please pre-register. Um, all right. Thank you so much, Dr. Glass. Um, welcome back to Kentucky and um, hopefully things get a little better. You came, you know, <laughs> the pandemic and everything improving. Yeah, it's really been great. It's really been great. I'll just one, one last point. I really have appreciated working with the staff at KDE. They have a national reputation uh, for quality and expertise and it's proven to be absolutely true. So just a shout out to the, the folks at the department that don't get a lot of accolades uh, very often, but they really are quality people and, and very knowledgeable. Well, that makes me feel very good to hear. So, <laughs> all right. Well, thank you once again. Um, I um, thank you guys. If you've tuned in, um, uh, thank you for joining us tonight. We'll be back next Monday and um, we will see you then. As always, we are 120 strong. Bye. Bye.